it's one of those things that you, you kind of races through your mind, you know, four o'clock. I'll, I'll just teach on Wednesday. I'll, just what I taught on Wednesday night. So Isaiah 53, okay? That's what I'll do, okay? And I didn't have peace about it, you, you know. And of course, those of you that were watching the baseball game, you know, you can just, re, you can just watch it later on, you know. It's okay. It's recorded. Uh, Jeff, was, Jeff was in the back, you know. He made sure that it was recorded for all of you guys. Or Wednesday morning, I'll just teach on Micah. I'll just teach on what I taught on, on Micah. Uh, didn't have peace. Or Monday night, Ezekiel. I'll just teach on Ezekiel. I'll just teach about what it means to be a, a watchman. That didn't have peace. And this question kept coming in my, my mind, uh, the, the title of the sermon. It's where is God? Where is God in the hardest of times? Where is God in the times when um, I cry out and it feels like my prayers are bouncing off the ceiling? You see, all the prophets felt this. All the, uh, the writers in the scriptures cry out these prayers, whether it's in the Psalms or whether it's in Isaiah or Ezekiel or Jeremiah. But the one that kind of epitomizes it the most, uh, comes from the little book of Lamentations. You see, in the book of Lamentations, in chapter 3, verse 52 through 57, we read these words. My enemies without cause hunted me down like a bird. They silenced my life in the pit. And threw stones at me. The waters flowed over my head. And I said, I am cut off. I called on your name, O Lord, from the lowest pit. You have heard my voice. Do not hide your ear from my sign, from my cry for help. You drew near on the day I called on you and said... Do not fear. And so, Father, as we approach your throne this morning, I thank you so much for the many people that work behind the scenes, for our amazing worship team, for the sound uh, guys in the back, for those that are going to be uh, teaching our uh, kids uh, in the second service, for our pastors, for uh, Jason and Mike Atkins and Mike Cosper and Mike Butler and all the things that they do behind the scenes, not, not just on Sundays, but throughout the week, Lord. I ask that you bless them. But I ask that you help us this morning as we evaluate our lives when the times of we cry these same cries as Jeremiah does in the book of Lamentations. Where are you? Where are you? in the hard times of our lives. And so, Lord, reveal to us this morning where you are. We, we thank you. We thank you. We thank you that you're with us. But more importantly, we thank you where you are even now. And so, Lord, this morning, I ask that you would just open up our eyes afresh and help us to see your word, maybe uh, something new for the first time that we've never even read. They would just bless our hearts and draw us closer to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Uh, amen. And amen. Lamentations is one of those uh, books that wasn't written at a desk. 
It wasn't written, you know, in some, you know, nice place or palace or even a house. It was written in the deepest, darkest times of a person's life where he's literally sinking down into mud in a pit. He's in a prison, not with bars, but literally a well that had dried up that had just mud at the bottom. And he's sinking down into this mud, as we read earlier, and he's crying out to God this song, this hymn, this poem. You see, Lamentations is five chapters long. Uh, Jeremiah was the one of only, out of all the prophets, the only one that wrote two of the books in the Bible, uh, excluding Moses. Uh, but you understand that, that Isaiah wrote one book, and Hosea wrote one book, and Micah wrote one book, Malachi wrote one book. Jeremiah is the only one that wrote two of the books. He wrote the book of Jeremiah, which was named after him. And then he also wrote the book that follows exactly after Jeremiah, the book of Lamentations. Lamentations if you look at the first chapter, by the way, I'll just ask you this. How many verses are in the first chapter? How many verses are in the first chapter? 22. How many verses are in the second chapter? 22. How many verses are in the fourth chapter? You have to skip ahead a little bit. 22, right? How many verses are in the fifth chapter? Ooh, interesting. And of course, the third chapter has 66 verses. Whenever you see a, a book or a chapter in the Bible that has a repetition of 22 verses, we call this an acrostic hymn or acrostic psalm. You see it most uh, profoundly in uh, Psalms 119, where there's 176 verses, a division of uh, 22, eight verses for every single consonant of the Hebrew alphabet. The same with the book of Lamentations. Every single one of the verses in chapter one all start with a sequential letter of the Hebrew alphabet. The same with chapter two, starting with Aleph, Beit, Gimel, all the way down through the Hebrew consonants. And then also in chapter three, although they're more spread out, three verses for every single consonant. And then chapter four, every single Hebrew consonant in sequential order, an alphabetic psalm, an alphabetic him. And these, of course, were meant to be memorized. They were, they were meant to be a mnemonic device so that it could be easily remembered. You see, where he is at, he doesn't have pen and paper. He doesn't even have light. Where is he at? He's in a pit composing this lamentation. It starts out in Lamentations chapter 1, verse 1. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. 
How like a widow is she who is great among the nations. The princes among the provinces has become a slave. She weeps bitterly in the night. Her tears are on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously uh, with her. They have become uh, her enemies. Judah has gone into captivity under affliction and hard servitude. She dwells among the nations. She finds no rest. All her persecutors overtake her in dire straits. The reeds to Zion, the roads to Zion moan because no one comes to the set feast. All her gates are desolate. Her priests sigh. Her virgins are afflicted and she is in a bitterness. The definition of the title of this book, Lamentation. You see, this book, if you were to read it from verse 1, chapter 1, all the way to the end of chapter 5, is full of laments. These laments that cry out from the depths of the prophet's soul himself. Unfortunately, many times we get confused about the difference between a lament and a depression. You see, the prophet Jeremiah wasn't depressed. He was lamenting. There's a difference. When I'm depressed, who am I looking at? Myself, right? It's all about me. All the things that are happening to me. Oh, woe is me, right? The depression that can set into our souls when we think about our problems. A lament is different. A lament looks at other people. As it's, we see throughout this book, he's lamenting what is happening in Jerusalem to his people, to the people of Israel. That's what he's lamenting. I mean, he could cry out, you know, in the pit and say, oh, woe is me. This is what's happening to me. Come and rescue me. But rather, what is Jeremiah doing? He's crying out for his people, the people of Israel. He's lamenting their sorrow. He's lamenting uh, their hardships. He's lamenting their problems and asking God to come and save his people corporately. You see, it's one of those things to cry out for other people in the times of their distress in their problems, to cry out for my brothers and my sisters, for those that I know, my friends and my family, my church members, and to cry out as we did earlier today, oh Lord, help them. It's always outward focus. Verse 5, her adversaries have become the master. Her enemies prosper for the Lord has afflicted her because of the multitude of her transgressions. Her children have gone into captivity before the enemy. And from the daughter of Zion, all her splendor has departed. 
Her princes have become like deer that find no pasture, that flee without strength before the pursuer. In the days of her affliction and roaming, Jerusalem remembers all her pleasant things that she had in the days of old when her people fell into the hand of the enemy with no one to help her. The adversary saw her and mocked at her downfall. Jerusalem has sinned gravely, therefore she has become vile. All who honored her despise her because they have seen her nakedness. Yes, she sighs and she turns away. Is there any filter on the language of the laments? It is raw. It is vulnerable. It is the cry from the heart of the prophets. All her people, or excuse me, uh, verse uh, 8 or verse 9, her uncleanness is in her skirts. She did not consider her destiny. Therefore, her collapse was awesome. She had no comforter. O Lord, behold my affliction, for the enemy is exalted. The adversaries have spread his hand over all her pleasant things, for she has seen the nations enter her sanctuary. Those whom you commanded not to enter your assembly, all her people sigh. They seek bread. They have given their valuables for food to restore life. See, O Lord, and consider for I am uh, scorned. It is the cry of the prophet's heart. Look at what has happened to your temple, to your sanctuary, to your people. Verse 12, is it nothing to you, all you who pass by, behold and see? There is any sorrow like my sorrow, which has been brought on me, which the Lord has inflicted in the day of his fierce anger. From above, he has sent fire into my bones and it overpowered them he has spread a net for my feet and turned me back he has made me desolate and faint all the day the yoke of my transgressions was bound they were woven together by his hands and thrust upon my neck he made my strength fail the lord delivered me into the hands of those whom i am not able to withstand the lord has trampled underfoot all my mighty men in my midst he has called an assembly against me to crush my young men the lord trampled as in a winepress the virgin daughter of judah the affliction that is happening because of the sins of the people of Israel. There is no filter. It is raw. It is the cry of the prophet's heart for his people. Can you imagine that? You know, whether it's on the TV or from a, a sermon itself, for a pastor today uh, to preach something like this. When we're always looking for joy, when we're always looking for comfort, when we're always looking for, for something that entertains our society. We need to bring people through the doors. We, we need to uh, preach a, a, a seeker-friendly sermon. Can't preach about sin. You have to preach about the love of God, and thank God there is that in this. But do you understand what Jeremiah is doing He's just pouring his heart out before God. This is what is happening in your people's lives. 
Verse 16, for these things I weep my eye. My eye overflows with water because the comforter who should restore my life is far from me. My children are desolate because the enemy prevailed. Zion spreads out her hands, but no one comforts her. The Lord has commanded concerning Jacob that those around him become his adversaries. Jerusalem has become an unclean thing among them. The Lord is righteous. For I rebelled against his commandments. Hear now all peoples and behold my sorrow. My virgins and my young men have gone into captivity. I called for my lovers, but they deceived me. My priests and my elders breathed their last in the city while they sought food to restore their life. See, O Lord, and I am in distress. My soul is troubled. My heart is overturned within me, for I have been very rebellious outside. The sword bereaves at home and is like death. They have heard that I sigh, but no one comforts me. All my enemies have heard of my trouble. They are glad that they, you have done it. Bring on the day you have announced that they may become like me. Let all their wickedness come before you and do to them as you have done to me. For all my transgressions, for my sighs are many, and my heart is faint. You see, Jeremiah had a nickname. You guys know what the nickname was? Yeah, that, that's what all the commentators say. The commentators say he's the weeping prophet. I, I have a different nickname for him. His nickname actually comes from Jeremiah chapter 13. This, this is one of those amazing, you know, very personal prophecies. It says in Jeremiah chapter 13, verse 1, Thus the Lord said to me, go and get yourself a linen sash. Put it around your waist. But do not put it in water. So I got a sash, according to the word of the Lord, and put it around my waist. This is a... Friendly way of saying a, a, you know, an equitable way of saying a, a nice way of saying go and buy underwear. You see, this was the thing, the loincloth. This was a, a wrapping around the private parts. What, what maybe your grandma used to call the intimates. Uh, don't, don't go into that drawer. That's where the, the you know, the intimates are, right? It was a piece of underwear that Jeremiah was called by God to go and buy. And then put it around his waist and not wash it. Okay? Dirty underwear. Jeremiah, the prophet with dirty underwear. It gets worse, by the way. In verse 3, the word of the Lord came to me the second time saying, Take the sash that you acquired, which is around your waist. Arise, go to the Euphrates, hide it there in the hole of a rock. So I went and I hid it by the Euphrates as the Lord commanded me. Now it came to pass after many days that the Lord said to me, Arise, go to the Euphrates and take from there the sash which I commanded you to hide there. Then I went to the Euphrates and I dug and I took the sash from the place where I had hidden it. And there was the sash ruined. It was profitable for nothing. What happened to his underwear? Now, probably some of you wear underwear like this. 
you know, and if you're married, your wife doesn't want you to wear that underwear anymore. But do you see the picture? That thing that covers the most intimate part of your body is now destroyed and ruined. There is a prophecy. There, there is an amazing picture that God shows to Jeremiah about this. And the word of the Lord came to me saying, thus says the Lord, in this manner, I will ruin the pride of Judah and the great pride of Jerusalem. Jerusalem. This evil people who refuse to hear my words, who follow the dictates of their heart and walk after other gods to serve them and worship them shall be just like this sash, which is profitable for nothing. For as the sash clings to the waist of a man, so I have caused the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah to cling to me, says the Lord, that they may become my people for renown, for praise and for glory, but they would not hear. You used to be this intimate with me, Israel. You used to cling to me. And now you've gone and defiled yourselves. And you're just like dirty underwear. Not worthy of anything just to be thrown out. This is what happens when sin infests our lives. You see, Jeremiah had to understand this intimately as well. He was not welcomed when he taught the word of God. He, he was not uh, praised or, or even, you know, honored when he would preach. In fact, in Jeremiah chapter 38, verse 5, we find out that they actually put him into a pit. Not, not a nice prison, not, not chained between two Roman guards like what Paul, when we're, learn, we're going through the book of Romans on Sundays, but the literally the definition of loneliness, sorrow, sinking into a pit. It says in Jeremiah chapter 38, verse 5, that Zedekiah the king said, Look, he is in your hand, for the king can do nothing against you. So they took Jeremiah and they cast him into the dungeon of Malchiah, the king's son, which was in the court of the prison, and they let Jeremiah down with ropes. And in the dungeon, there was no water but mire. So Jeremiah sank in the mire. Can you imagine? There is no key. There is no way to escape the slick walls of this old well. Instead, what is happening to Jeremiah as his feet touch this gunky, miry mud? His weight sucks him down. He is literally sinking into the mud. No way to escape. And of course, you know, just dirt walls around him or, or stone walls around him. He is looking up and he cries this lament before God himself. The cry 
of the weeping prophet. The cry of the one who understands what it means by the people of Israel to no longer be intimate with their God. The prophet with dirty underwear, sinking in the mire, as it's literally uh, the acidic qualities of the mud and you know urine and, and feces and all the things that are down there, just literally eating away your skin as he's sinking down into this miry clay. This is where he writes Lamentations chapter 2. How the Lord has covered the daughter of Zion with a cloud in his anger. He cast down from heaven to the earth the beauty of Israel and did not remember his footstool in the day of his anger. The Lord has swallowed up and has not pitied all the dwelling places of Jacob. He has thrown down in his wrath the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He has brought them down to the ground. He has profaned the kingdom and its princes. And the cry, the title is, where is God in this time? Where is God? You may have asked that same question. Maybe in 2020, maybe in 2021. Maybe it's emotional, maybe it's financial, maybe it's something that's going on in your life, and you ask yourself, where is God in this situation? Verse 3, he has cut off in fierce anger every horn of Israel. He has drawn back his right hand from before the enemy. He has blazed against Jacob uh, like a flaming fire devouring all around, standing like an enemy. He has bent his bow with his right hand like an adversary. He has slain all who are pleasing to his eyes on the tent of the daughter of Zion. He has poured out his fury like fire. The Lord was like an enemy. He has, swall or he has swallowed up Israel, he has swallowed up all her palaces. He has destroyed her strongholds. He has increased mourning and lamentation in the daughter of Judah. He has done violence to his tabernacle as if it were a garden. He has destroyed his place of assembly. The Lord has caused the appointed feast and the Sabbaths to be forgotten in Zion. In his burning indignation, he has spurned the king and the priest. The Lord has spurned his altar. He has abandoned his sanctuary. He has given up the walls of her palaces into the hand of the enemy. They have made a noise in the house of the Lord as on the day of a set feast. The Lord has purposed to destroy the wall of the daughter of Zion. He has stretched out a line. He has not withdrawn his hand from destroying. Therefore, he has caused the rampart and the wall to lament and languish together. Her gates have sunk into the ground. He has destroyed and broken her bars. Her king and her princes are among the nations. The law is no more, and her prophets find no vision from the Lord, the elders of the daughter of Zion sit on the ground and they keep silence. They throw dust on their heads and they gird themselves with sackcloth. The virgins of Jerusalem bow their heads to the ground and the cry is, where is God? You see, during this time, this is the riffraff. This is all that's left of Jerusalem. This is all that's left of Israel. Babylon has come three times. This is the third time. First time they come and they, they take away the, you know, the best and the brightest. They take away men like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. 
Uh, the, you know, those guys that are described in the book of Daniel as handsome and wise and are able to learn. They take away the best from Israel first time. Then the second time they come in and they take away what's called the second exile. Those people like uh, Ezekiel, the blue collar workers, the, the common people, the ones that have some sort of a skill. And they take them away to Babylon. And so all that is left the third time the Babylonian army comes against Jerusalem are those that are poor, the riffraff, the leftovers, people like Jeremiah. They've surrounded the walls, the army of Babylon. And they're laying siege to this once beautiful city. It is horrific within the walls as we read on in verse 11. My eyes fail with tears. My heart is troubled. My bile is poured on the ground because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. Because the children and the infants faint in the streets of the city. Do you see the siege? As the army, this powerful army surrounds and literally isolates the city of Jerusalem. Nothing in, nothing out. They say to their mothers, where is the grain and the wine as they swoon like the wounded in the streets of the city as their life is poured out in their mother's bosoms? How shall I console you to what shall I liken you, O daughter of Jerusalem? What shall I compare with you that I may comfort you, O virgin daughter of Zion? For your ruin is spread wide as the sea. Who can heal you? Your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions. They have not covered your iniquity to bring back your captives, but have envisioned for you false and prophecies and delusions. All who pass by clap their hands at you. They hiss and they shake their heads at the daughter of Jerusalem. Is this the city that is called the perfection of beauty, the joy of the whole earth? All your enemies have opened their mouths against you. They hiss. And they gnash their teeth. They say, we have swallowed her up. Surely this is the day we have waited for. We have found it. We've seen it. The Lord has done what he purposed. He has fulfilled his word, which he commanded in the days of old. He has thrown down and has not pitied. He has caused an enemy to rejoice over you. He has exalted the horn of your adversaries. Do you see the pride, the rejoicing of the enemy over the defeat of Jerusalem. Verse 18, their heart cried out to the Lord, a wall of the daughter of Zion. Let tears run down like a river day and night. Give yourself no relief. Give your eyes no rest. Arise, cry out in the night at the beginning of the watches. Pour out your heart like water before the face of the Lord. Lift your hands him for the life of your young children who faint from hunger at the head of every street where is God verse 20 see O Lord and consider to whom have you done this should the woman eat their offspring and the children they have cuddled should the priest and the prophet be slain in the sanctuary of the Lord young and old lie on the ground in the streets my virgins and my young men have fallen by the sword. You have slain them in the day of your anger. You have slaughtered, not pitied. Where is God? You have invited us to a feast day, the terrors that surround me. 
In the day of the Lord's anger, there was no refuge or survivor. Those whom I have borne and brought up, my enemies have destroyed. It is the cry, it is the lament of the prophets for his own people. You see, in the New Testament, Jesus was also compared to Jeremiah. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 14, or verse 13 and 14, it says, When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked the disciples, saying, Who do men say that I am? The Son of Man am. So they said, some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Now, why would they compare Jesus to Jeremiah? See, Jesus had the same heart. He didn't cry for himself. Who did he cry for? His friends. Shortest verse in the Bible. English verse in the Bible. John 11.35. What does it say? Jesus wept. Who did he weep for? His friends. Mary, Martha, all those that were gathered there at the grave of Lazarus. Or in Luke chapter 19, verse 41 to 44, he weeps over Jerusalem just like Jeremiah did. Now, as he drew near, by the way, he's walking toward his death. This is the last time he's entering into Jerusalem as he's going to uh, the place of crucifixion after he goes down the Via Dolorosa there. Now, as he drew near, he saw the city. He wept over it, saying, If you had known, even you, especially in this day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes, for days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you, surround you, close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. The weeping, the weeping, the weeping of Jesus Christ for the city of Jerusalem because of their unrepentant hearts. Again, the amazing way that our God weeps for us. Chapter 3, verse 1, again, where is God? The, the personhood or the, the grammar changes a little bit in, in chapter 3. We now see the, the third person singular word or pronoun he uh, repeated many, many times. It becomes more personal now in chapter 3. He's no longer talking to God, but now he's talking about God. What, what God has done. No longer describing God in a, a personal sense, but now being objective in what has God done to the people of Jerusalem. Chapter 3, verse 1, I am the man who has seen affliction by the rod of his wrath. He has led me and made me walk in darkness and not in light. Surely he has turned his hand against me time and time again throughout the day. He has aged my flesh and my skin and broken my bones. He has besieged me and surrounded me with bitterness and woe. 
He has set me in dark places like the dead of long ago. He has hedged me in so that I cannot get out. He has made my chain heavy. Even when I cry and shout, he shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with hewn stone. He has made my paths crooked. He has been to me a bear lying in wait, like a lion in ambush. He has turned aside my ways and torn me in pieces. He has made me desolate. He has bent the bow and set me up as a target for the arrow. Can you imagine that? The, the, the cry of the prophet as he's saying, this has happened to me, but I lament for you. Despite the fact that all these things are going on in my life, this is what I'm going through. I feel like God is using me for target practice. But I lament for you. I pray for you. I pray for my people. I pray for the city of Jerusalem. Verse 13, he has caused the arrows, his quiver, to pierce my loins. By the way, just think about that. This is the PG version. I have become the ridicule of all my people, their taunting song all the day. He has filled me with bitterness. He has made me drink wormwood. He has also broken my teeth with gravel and covered me with ashes. He has moved my soul far from peace, and I have forgotten prosperity. As he's sinking in the mud, crying this prayer. It feels like I'm eating sand as he's sinking down in the mud. It feels like I am the target for God's arrows. In verse 18, the summation of this amazing lament, and I said, my strength and my hope have perished from the Lord. Have you ever asked that question, where is God? Now, probably you've never been in this dire of a situation. We may think we have. We, we may, you know, compare ourselves to other people and say, well, I don't make as much as they do. I don't have a nice house like they do. I don't have a nice car like they do. I don't have the things that they have. And we, we go into a deep depression. Or, or maybe we broke up with someone or maybe something's happening in our life where it feels like everybody is against us. But a lot of the times it's emotional. A lot of the times we amplify it for ourselves so that we feel, you know, make ourselves look more sorry than we actually are. But do you understand, Jeremiah? This is real. This is real life. To cry out, where is God? And in the darkest places of, of literally hopelessness, in the darkest places of life, where there is no way to look except for up. What does Jeremiah do? You probably even have these verses on your refrigerator. You won't have any of the rest of the book on your refrigerator. But you will have these next verses. Because that little ray of hope shines through. That little ray of hope shines through. And what does Jeremiah say? To himself, by the way. And the same thing I have to say to myself. This, or remember my affliction and roaming, 
the wormwood and the gall, my soul still remembers and sinks within me. This I recall to my mind. What do I have to do? I have to remind myself. I have to remind myself. In the hardest of times, I have to remind myself this verse. And what do you remind yourself? In the most dire of times, where is God? Where is God? This I recall to my mind. Therefore, I have hope. Through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed. Because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Every single day when that sun rises, what do I know beyond a shadow of a doubt? What do I know? That God is still faithful. That God will give me new loving kindnesses today. Is that a promise? Where is God? Where is God? In the hardest of times, in the worst of times, where is God? Now, the amazing thing, it continues on there. And then verse 24, it says this amazing, you know, the rest of this amazing promise. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that we should hope and wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. In the times where it feels like everything is going wrong, what can we do? We can wait on the Lord. Because I know, I know he's going to give me new loving kindness. I know he's going to be faithful in this situation. Not just because he's been faithful in every single situation in the past. But because he says he's going to be faithful. He will be faithful. In the hardest of times, as sure as the sun rises, even more sure as the sun rises, God will be faithful and his loving kindnesses will be new. His compassions will never fail. Can you claim that promise in the deepest of times? But that still doesn't answer the question, where is God? Where is God? How can he be faithful? How can he show new loving kindness? How can he show me compassion? Where is God? You see, if you read the rest of the book, and by the way, I, I challenge you this week, read, just start in chapter one, read the whole thing. One sitting, don't, don't you know, read it day to day. Re read it, just five chapters, just read it through. Because it gets worse in chapters four and five. The hardships get worse. The, the heartache gets deeper in chapters 4 and 5. But in chapter 5, and this is the amazing thing, chapter 5, verse 19, it tells us where God is the whole time. Where is God? How can he be faithful in every single situation? How can he be compassionate? How can he show loving kindnesses every day, new loving kindnesses every single day? Where is God? It tells us. 
Lamentation chapter 5, verse 19. You, Lord, remain forever. Your throne from generation to generation. Where's God? He's on the throne. Where is God? He's on the throne. You see, from the throne, he is sovereign. From the throne, he is holy. Just read the book of Isaiah, chapter 6. Amazing. The glory of God sitting on the throne. On the throne, he is in charge. But even more amazing, from the throne, he sends his son, Jesus Christ, to die for you and me. We have a paraclete, the Holy Spirit, who comforts us during our times of need from the throne of God, who intercedes for us between us and the throne of God. As we see at the Easter story, the crucifixion, what happened between the veil, the holy of holies, and the holy place, as that veil is torn from top to bottom, we have access to the throne of God. Every single time you pray, guess what you get to do? You get to go before the throne of God. Boldly, the Bible says. Boldly before the throne of God. Where is God in your hardest time? Where is God? He's on the throne. He's still on the throne. He's still in charge. And that should be the greatest comfort in our life. God is still in control. When it feels like chaos is all around us, God is still in charge. God is still in control. And by that, his every promise will come true. Every single day when that sun rises, I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that he will be faithful. That he will give me new loving kindness. There's an amazing hymn. We're not going to sing it today. We're going to sing a different hymn. But, but it's where this, these verses come from or, or inspired this hymn. Great is thy faithfulness, right? Great is thy faithfulness. Oh God, my Father. In every single situation of life, is God there? Or as uh, Chris and, and Tori and, and Dirk and Scott uh, led us in worship, it is well with my soul, right? In the darkest of times, read the history of that amazing psalm. It is still well with my soul. Even when I lose loved ones, even when, as the author of that amazing hymn, lost his wife and his daughters. It is still well with my soul. Why? Why is that? Why can I claim that? Because God is still on the throne. So this morning we get to sing a, a different hymn. And I, I love this, by the way. <clears throat> I'm just going to read a, a part of it and then we'll, we'll sing it together. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. 
My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me hence depart. Where is God today? On the throne. He is sovereign. He is in control. And he holds you in his hands. Your very name is written in blood on his hands. The privilege of knowing God intimately. The privilege of coming before the very throne of God this morning. Stand with me as we sing this hymn. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. Great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that well in heaven he stands. No tongue can bid me hence depart. No tongue can bid me hence depart. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free, for God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me, to look on him and pardon me. Behold him there, the spotless lamb, my perfect spotless righteousness. The great unchangeable I am, the King of glory and of grace. One with himself I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. My life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ my Savior and my God. With Christ my Savior and my God. And so, Father, this morning, whatever situation in life we may be in, whether it's a depression, whether it's a hard thing that we ourselves are going through, whether it's the, the news itself that just leads us further into despair, whether it's the chaos that is around us, whether it is the, the things that may be happening in our families or our society today. Help us to understand that you are still in control. That we can come before you at any time and present our requests to you and know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you still hear us that your loving kindnesses are still new, that your compassions, they will never fail us, that your faithfulness is always there because you are a great God.
remind us this morning, remind us this morning of that amazing truth that you are still on the throne. We can come to you at any time, know that you are always there for us, for your good. So Lord, this morning, give us hope. Give us joy. Help us to wait upon you in the miry clay. Help us to wait upon you during the times of trouble and see you work an amazing miracle. Lord, we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. God bless you.